Hi, everybody. I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I'm continuing to do my series of webinars now that we are almost two years in. Um, I started these back in March of 2020. And I always like to bring you new information and things you might not be familiar with or know about that may be really important to you. Today, my guest is Julie Broadway, and she's from the American Horse Council. And I'm so glad that she's here today. She was just at AAP, as was I, um, so that we can inform you a bit more about what the American Horse Council does, why it's important to you, and how to kind of keep in touch with what's going on in the horse industry nationwide. So welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to this discussion. And I've got some slides to share to sort of give you some context and give you some visuals to look at. But then we'll just do some Q&A whenever it uh, is appropriate or stop me as we go along and I'll embellish or fill in the gaps. <laughs> I'm really good at interrupting my guests and asking questions. So that's not a problem. Um, but Julie, first, uh, what I'd love you to do is just introduce yourself. Like, have you been a horse uh, kid all your life or what's your background? Okay, so here's my funny story I tell everybody. When I was a child, I grew up on a barrier island right outside of North Carolina. So right between Wilmington and Myrtle Beach, there's a place called Oak Island. Of course, there's not a lot of, a lot of horses around Oak Island, but each summer my parents would send me off to 4-H camp. I would go sailing camp one year and I would go to archery camp one year. And one year I went to Betsy Jeff Penn 4-H camp, which is a equestrian facility and took horseback riding lessons and came home totally smitten uh, with horses. And that's what started my entire career. My parents made a fatal mistake. Uh, <laughs> both of my parents grew up on small farms, but they were not necessarily horsey people. Um, and I only have one relative who is a cousin who is, is a horse nut like me, but the rest of the extended family, not so much. So they think I've got some affliction, you know, like what is wrong with you? Um, so that's, that's how I got started. But I spent the first 25 years of my career working in the electric utility industry um, and doing horses on the side. I managed a horse show. I was involved with the local horse club, you know, showed horses. I stood a stallion at stud, uh, trail road, did, did everything. Um, and then after I went back and got my master's degree, my MBA, I thought, you know, I've had enough of this for-profit world. Let's go do something different. So I spent almost 10 years in Vermont as the executive director at the American Morgan Horse Association. Wow. And loved it. It was great. And then Jay Hickey, who was my predecessor here at the American Horse Council, announced he was retiring and I threw my name in the hat. And lo and behold, here I am in Washington, D.C. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. So you're a Morgan Horse lover as, as am I and many other people that I know. Yep. And I've been in, and my cousin, the one that's involved in horses is a Morgan horse breeder. She runs Hollybrook Farm in Lexington, North Carolina, and she's got some wonderful world champion horses and some great uh, 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 brood mares and things out there. Um, and so she was my go-to person when I was saying, what kind of breed do I want to do? And I turned to her and she said, well, you're going to love the Morgans because they're very willing and they're friendly and they're very people oriented. And next thing I know, I'm neck deep. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I went to university in Hampshire and they had Morgan horses. That's what Ooh. we rode. Mm -hmm. um, so, yep. And my cousins had Morgan. So, yeah, I love the breed. It's a great breed. So how long have you been in D.C.? So you live in D.C. to work for the American Horse Council. I do indeed. My office is downtown. We're about a block from the White House. I can peek out my windows <laughs> some days and see what kind of craziness is going on over there at the White House. Uh, I came here in 2016. Uh, and, you know, of course, with the pandemic, I've been working from home, but today I'm back in the office uh, and we've been sort of slowly coming back to the office. And you'll hear some more about my staff and sort of where we are and 
all that kind of thing. Cause some are here with me here in DC and some work remotely and you know, we kind of, we're, we're very flexible. We're very nimble. <laughs> well, you're not far from me at all. Cause I'm out in little Washington, Virginia. Beautiful. Yeah. We're yeah. almost neighbors. <laughs> All right, so let's dive right in. Let's find out what uh, the American Horse Council is all about. Okay, let's see if my screen share is working okay here. Come on. Okay, so you see this, Wendy? Yep, it's good. Perfect, okay. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of an overview first for some context about the horse industry. I'm sure most of your listeners are horse people, but I've got some great statistics that came from our 2017 National Economic Impact Study that I thought I'd throw in at the beginning to sort of set the stage. And then I'll, I'll drill down into who the American Horse Council is and why we exist and what we do and why the industry needs us and all the things that, that go along with that answer. So let's get started. Uh, economic impact study told us a statistic we had never had before, which is 30.5% of all U.S. households contain a horse enthusiast or 38 million households. That's a really, really impressive number. And it's not one that we had ever collected before. And how it breaks down is 1.3% of those own a horse, 16% participate, but don't own. And then 13.2 spectate, but they don't own or participate. Now, the reason this statistic is so important to me is it says we have a great audience to appeal to, to get involved in the industry in some way or another. So this was a really nice number for us to, to learn about. And we do leverage this number a lot when we go up on uh, the Hill and meet with congressional offices, because that means that almost every senator or House of Representative member has horse enthusiasts in their districts or in their home states. Uh, so those are, those are voting people that we need them, you know, to help support the horse industry. It's a huge number. It's a huge number. It's a huge number. Wow. So when the study was completed, one of the things we were really excited about was that we learned that at, in 2017, $122 billion is the total value added to the U.S. economy each year by the horse industry. That's a lot bigger than a, other, a lot of other livestock groups or a lot of other industry sectors. So we've got a very impressive number to tell. And that top line you see across there are all of the numbers that we have, which include what we call direct and indirect uh, things. So the direct numbers are across the top. And then across the bottom, you've got the, uh, I'm sorry, I said that backwards. Across the top, the total numbers, including direct and indirect, across the bottom are the direct numbers. But it's amazing. We have almost a million jobs that are direct employment impact in our industry. And a lot of people, those are, those are sort of hidden people. People don't realize there's that many jobs out there. Um, and we also learned that we're at 7.2 million horses. Now, a lot of people say, well, how many owners is that? And we roughly say that there are about 2 million horse owners in the US. Wow, so these are such impressive statistics. I, I always knew that the horse industry had an economic impact, but this is quite impressive. And you said that this was a 2017 study. That's correct. And so it's four years old. It's four years old. And normally we would do the study every five years. So we would be coming up on doing the study in 2022. But when we reached out to the industry, everybody said, we're a little anxious because of the pandemic. We're not certain if we're going to see very accurate numbers. There may have been some contraction in the industry. So let's put the study off till 2023. So you'll hear more about the upcoming study next year, but we're going to do the study in 2023. Well, um, 
And given what we kind of mentioned before we got started, the fact that during the pandemic, we've seen this huge number of horses adopted, these numbers could actually be going way up. Exactly. What we were really anxious when the pandemic started because we did see the industry contract when they had the previous recession. So we were like, ah, oh, what's going to happen? But what we heard, Wendy, was Lesson Barnes uh, really had a large uh, uh, waiting list. We heard uh, horse adoptions from rescues and sanctuaries were way up. We attribute part of that because more people moved out of the city into more rural areas because they didn't have to commute, you know. Uh, and they had more time on their hands. Um, I told a, a funny story about how people who had never owned a horse went to a rescue to, to uh, get a, adopt a horse. And of course, a smart rescue person says, well, horses like to be around other horses. So don't just take one, take two. <laughs> um, but we really saw some amazing things. And we are, we're very thankful that although in the very first few months, people were anxious trying to figure out how to navigate all this, everything sort of settled down right now. Um, entries at any breed show or any discipline event are way up. I mean, way up. And yeah, no, I, I, I have a good friend in Michigan and she was telling me she's a lot involved with the Arabs that the entry entries are just crazy. I mean, the oh, shows are packed. They're just packed. Um, we also, as I mentioned to you before we got started, we've also seen the price of horses escalate. Um, I looked at the numbers from the last Keeneland sale and I was amazed at what they were getting for some of those horses. I mean, a million plus on some fairly young horses that are sort of unproven at this point, I would guess, although they got good bloodlines. Um, but the Morgan Superior sale um, had a huge uh, turnout and really strong uh, you know, prices on all the horses there. And I've heard that same thing from a number of other breeds and disciplines that like, wow, cool. And I don't know if that's because we have a, a demand and supply challenge because maybe people didn't breed as much during the first part of the pandemic, not knowing what they could afford, you know, kind of thing. So maybe there's there's fewer supply, but big demand. I don't know, but we're excited. <laughs> yeah, it's great because what that means and, and the way I look at it is if you have all these kids coming into lesson bars, taking lessons, they're going to be potential horse owners in a few years. That's and so, exactly right. so that actually is a good indicator that the industry is on the up instead of on the down. Yeah, and I'll just throw one more thing in um, that from a racing standpoint, uh, the purses and uh, handle is way up over there, too. They they struggled just slightly when the pandemic started, but they've truly rebounded. So I could pick almost any sector in our industry and tell you that they've had a really strong response. Wow. Well, that's fantastic news because I, you know, I've always worried that like, especially after 2008 as a riding instructor, you know, I started really noticing that, that lesson barns were going away and things were going away. And I got concerned about the industry and what was going to happen, but this is fantastic news. This is fantastic. Okay. So let me tell you a little bit now about who we are at the American Horse Council. So our mission here is to advocate for the social, economic, and legislative interest of the entire horse industry. That's why that those numbers are so important is because we are representing every aspect of the industry. We have four real focus areas, and I'm going to talk about each of these in a little more detail. We really focus on federal legislative advocacy, but I will say some issues start at the state level and come up to the federal level, and some federal issues start up here and they go down to the state level. So we monitor some state legislative things, too. Uh, we deal with regulatory issues, whether they be Department of Transportation or Department of Ag or Department of Interior. So I've got some stuff about that. 
Uh, we really pride ourselves on all of the coalitions and partnerships that we form. You can't get a lot done in DC if you don't have good collaboration with some other industry partners. So we do a lot of work in that area and we sit on a lot of different uh, committees. We offer a tremendous amount of education and webinar uh, and we do some leadership development. Uh, and then lastly, because of our role in DC, we're often asked to take on industry initiatives. Um, they'll say, well, we don't really know where this should fit in the industry. So will you guys get it started and then we'll figure it out. So I'll talk about some of those that we have out there too. So you're probably wondering guys, so who, who makes up the American Horse Council? Well, we have members all across the country. They range from people in equine associations or organizations. So here's a laundry list of, of a bunch of them. We have equine small businesses. Now, you don't normally think about CPAs and attorneys being in the equine space, but they all specialize. And so we have some attorneys and some CPAs, and of course, stables and racetracks and veterinarians and farriers and all these other professions. We have just general horse owners or enthusiasts. We have some industry partners that I've set here, like uh, Jarvis Insurance or Adaptus or Zoetis. Um, and then we have state horse councils. Now, you're going to see, I think on my next slide, that not every state has a state horse council, but oh. they are really important to how we do grassroots outreach. So I'll talk a minute about that on the next slide. But through all of these member organizations and businesses, we reach about 1 million horse enthusiasts out there. So when we send out our newsletter, that's, that's about who we reach. A lot of these just turn around and we give them permission to uh, take our newsletters or our content and forward it on to, to their members too. So here's a little bit about how the whole thing breaks down. So uh, we were formed in 1969. It's important to understand that we're a bipartisan advocacy organization and we operate by consensus. Now, a lot of people go, why do you do that? Um, the reason is because when the industry doesn't have a, a consensus around an issue, we don't want to create more divisiveness amongst the industry. So when we have an issue that we all don't agree on, then we speak to all sides of that issue, but we remain neutral. So we're sort of like Switzerland out there, if you will. <laughs> um, we have a board of trustees that has 14 directors. We have a foundation, which is our nonprofit uh, arm, which is our C3. And then we have a political action committee uh, or a PAC, which has four directors. We run everything that we do through our committee structure and then bubble up. So if you've got a racing issue, it goes to the racing advisory committee. They debate and discuss and decide if they want to put something forward to the trustees on the board to get um, a position paper done or to take some stance on a particular thing. We have recreation trails and land use, which has been really busy. Uh, and so I'll talk some more about that in a minute. We have a health and regulatory committee. We have a welfare committee. We have a show and competition committee. We have this coalition of state horse councils which is comprised of all 25 state horse councils uh, around. You'll see the list there on the bottom. Uh, and we have what we call a marketing alliance, which is a privately funded initiative, which is all about trying to get people engaged in the horse industry. So they have some, some special projects they do there. But that's a little bit about how, how we're all organized and sort of how things happen around here. Um, it's not uncommon for somebody to call us that is not affiliated with us, they find their name and our phone number somewhere and they've got some issue and they're 
they need some direction or they need us to point them somewhere and we're happy to do that. But if it's an industry-wide issue, then we say, okay, we've got to send this to a committee and let the committee sort of weigh in on, on what they think we ought to do. So, so um, this might be a couple of silly questions. Where do you find the members for your committee? Okay. So generally what happens is when someone joins the American Horse Council, if they have an interest in serving on a committee or a task force or an ad hoc group, uh, they make that interest known. Uh, and we make certain that we try to keep these really balanced. You'll see that most of our committees have somewhere in the neighborhood about 12 to 15 members. Uh, that gives ensures that we have a really good diverse uh, voice there. Uh, our smallest one is recreation, trails, and land use. And that is only because uh, it's such a, a specific targeted uh, subject matter there that we have smaller crowd there. But a really important one. So, uh -huh. so if someone joins American Horse Council, they express interest in one of these committees that goes up bubbles through the chain. If there's an opening, I, I assume that there's a discussion and a vote and an interview and all yep. that sort of stuff. And then once they're on that committee, how long does someone serve typically? So that really varies greatly. So some of our committee members are individuals who are representing the organization that they work for. So say you work for uh, the American Quarter Horse Association, <laughs> they will tell us, oh, we'd like somebody on the Equine Welfare Committee. And we say, okay, great. They tell us who that is. And that person may stay there until they designate someone different. Um, but we actually approve all the committee members each year before our annual meeting in June. We send out a list. We oh. confirm that everybody still has their, their current membership. And we send that list to the trustees and say, okay, here's who all we have right now. And they, they, they give us the nod or ask us questions about, hey, this person's new. Tell me a little bit about them, that kind of thing. Great. Uh, the only thing that I want to point out is that individual members. So if Wendy joins the American Horse Council instead of Surefoot, uh, you're not eligible to be on a uh, regular standing committee. You're eligible to be on a task force or a ad hoc committee or something along those lines. Uh, most of the uh, members on these individual committees um, are made up of representatives from uh, larger organizations. Got it. And so I assume that this is all, these are all volunteer people at this level of all these. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're very grateful for that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, because it's a lot of dedication, but obviously they're committed to the industry and, and they see a need and they fill that need and whether it's an organization or whatever, it's, it's, it's just really important. You know, I live in a really tiny town with 130 people. And if somebody moves out of town, it's hard for us to fill out the committees that we have. Mm -hmm. So um, I totally get that need for people to be willing to step up and take some of these roles on. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, so let me tell you exactly who we are. So I've introduced myself. I'm the president and CEO here. I have a director of health and regulatory affairs. That's Cliff Williamson. Uh, I have a government affairs liaison. He's my staff lobbyist. That's Mark Rizzo. Uh, I have a director for our United Horse Coalition, which is our effort to help horses that are at risk or in transition. So they need uh, resources uh, to be able to keep their horses at home or they're looking uh, for a hay bank or feed coupons or they're looking for a gelding clinic. Uh, and we, we have a complete database where we uh, allow people to go out there and search and find those kinds of resources. And that's Ashley Harkins. Uh, for the last three years, we have done a special research project, which is called our Equine Welfare Data Collective. Uh, and Emily Stearns is our resident researcher and the program manager for that program. And what we are doing with that is we are surveying all 1,000 rescues and sanctuaries who are registered 501c3s in the United States to understand what their capacity is, 
how many horses they have on hand, uh, how long those horses stay, what's length of uh, stay, uh, what means they get to them, were they uh, abandoned, you know, surrendered to them, or um, did animal control uh, collect them and, and ask the rescue to take them. Uh, so lots of uh, data and statistics about that program that are just fascinating, which is really helping us figure out how to help more horses that need to get adopted. Uh, we have a part-time membership and communications person, that's Dennis Martinez. Um, and we, the Marketing Alliance right now does not have a program manager. We are uh, doing a new strategic plan. So once we figure out sort of the direction we're going in with that, we'll probably look around for somebody to fill that. Um, I close by saying one of the most exciting things that we have done the last few years is internships. We generally have anywhere from three to seven undergrad or grad students who are assigned a project. They can do this remotely. Um, they get a small monthly stipend and uh, they produce a white paper uh, at the end of their, of their session. Uh, some of them do it for course credit. Some of them do it because they wanted to help their resume, you know, their experience, that kind of thing. Uh, but I will tell you, Wendy, that prior to the pandemic, we got, I don't know, two, three interns at any given time. The pandemic really created this um, demand for internship opportunities for students, you know, their, their home uh, schooling uh, and remote, remote learning. Uh, and so we've just been inundated with uh, with students that, that want some kind of opportunity. Well, that's great news. So can I ask you about the Equine Welfare Data Collective? You, yep. you said that there's a thousand 501c3s in the United States? That, that, are, that are registered rescues and sanctuaries. Mm -hmm. And do we have a, a number on how many are not registered? No, we wish we did. <laughs> yeah. But we're very, you know, we're like you, we're very confident that there's a lot of sort of what I call mom and pop rescues out there where somebody had some pasture and they started off maybe with one or two of their own horses. And then somebody said, could you take this one? And the next thing they know, they hung out a shingle and said, OK, we're a rescue, but we are not going to go through the process to be a 501c3. Right. I, I, I know that process. And it's it is a it takes time and effort to really punch it through and get it done. So I can appreciate that not everybody's. Um, ready, if they will, to be able to take that step. Yep, yep. Um, okay, so you'll see on the bottom there, I just threw that on there for grins and giggles. Um, we outsource all sort of our overhead things because it just helps us stay lean and not have to deal with all that minutia, but we outsource our reception and our accounting and our audit and our legal and our IT and all that other stuff that's listed there. <laughs> so let's talk now about a couple of these focus areas that I mentioned before. So first off, um, I, you need to know that at any given time, we are monitoring anywhere from 100 to 150 different pieces of legislation that are floating around. We are trying to see if they have a positive or negative impact on our industry, or if they affect just one sector, or exactly where, where we should uh, put our energies and whether it's something we want to support or something we need to go into a congressional office and say, this is okay, but it's not really going to work for this particular situation. So let's talk some language through. So the big thing we've been working on most recently has to do with tax policy, um, especially estate taxes. That's a big thing in our industry because a lot of our um, uh, members have inherited their family farm. So estate tax is a big thing for them. And of course, depreciation. I've been really, really focusing on that. Uh, we have a labor shortage in our state uh, and around the country. Um, and so labor policy and guest worker visas is a big deal for us. 
really work on H2A and H2B visas. Uh, we need some relief there. So we're, we're hopeful that maybe we can, we can find some more workers. So, um, so can we just, so that's like someone over in Europe that wants to come over and work in the horse industry here in the United States. They need an H2 visa. Is that right? They need an H2A or an H2B, depending on what job they're going to do here. Um, and it's it's a laborious process for an employer to get somebody here on an H2A or an H2B because they have to be able to prove that they have done everything they possibly can to try to find domestic labor in the U.S. And then if they can say, I posted this job and I had nobody who showed up, then they have a case for being able to justify getting a visa to get some foreign workers to come in and help them. Okay. Uh, third, so I talked about trails being a very important thing. So last year, the Great American Outdoors Act passed, and this was a significant amount of funding to help with deferred maintenance on trails in parks, uh, whether they state parks or federal parks or in the National Forest Service. Uh, some of the trails have gotten into disrepair, uh, and they kept postponing doing anything to them, and this really gave us an avenue to sort of re-energize and get some of those things done. Couldn't have been more timely, Wendy, because of course, with the pandemic, everybody wanted to go out, ride on the trails, be socially distant. This was a big thing. So <laughs> this has been one that we've, we've really been working on and primarily closely with the outdoor recreation uh, industry because we, they're multi-use trails. So we partner with uh, bikes and uh, hikers and all kinds of people to help sort of move the dial on this one specifically. And is that national parks or is that also state parks? It's both. It, it's okay. both. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite topics is always to talk about equine assisted services and the whole Veterans Act. Uh, so Representative Andy Barr from Kentucky is a real advocate for equine assisted services. And this is um, geared to a program that's through the VA so that veterans uh, can uh, sign up and uh, go and take equine assisted services to help them cope with PTSD or other challenges they might face. Uh, it's a really fantastic program and has done some great things. And he has the last three years, every year, he's gotten a little more funding and a little more funding for the VA to do that. So we, we applaud him for, for all his efforts there. Um, next, Horse Protection Act and Prevent All Soaring Tactics Act. Um, so we are um, constantly working with um, the USDA on the Horse Protection Act and different regulations and rules that need to be done there. If that falls short, then we have to look for legislative issues. And that is the case with the PAST Act or the Prevent All Soaring Tactics Act. Uh, we have a couple of breeds. Most people think of Tennessee walking horses uh, that uh, do have that exaggerated gait that is caused by soaring the horse, which we believe is not in the horse's best health or welfare. So we've been working the last couple of years to try to uh, implement either some regulatory changes through the Horse Protection Act or some legislative changes through the PAST Act. So still still working on that a little bit. I was going to ask you because, you know, um, Mark Senator Mark Warner is one of my senators, of course, and, and I know that he's involved with that issue because I get his emails. Right. Um, and he talks about that. So where is that in the legislation? Because I know it's a it's a topic that a lot of people are very concerned about in the horse industry. Where is it at in the process? OK, so when the past act was reintroduced this last time around, um, it has gotten a lot of support on the House side. So we've been really pleased with that. We have to sort of reach that number in order for it to go for a floor vote. 
Um, but we're not worried about the House side. Where we have struggled the last couple of times that this act has been introduced is on the Senate side. Um, and we just can't seem to get it to the floor and get a vote on it. Um, so we've got some legwork to do. And this is one of the few issues, I would say, that we really partner with some folks like ASPCA. A lot of people may have reservations about the ASPCA, but any organization, whether it's AAEP or the um, AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association or ASPCA, anybody that's concerned about horse health and horse welfare traditionally have been part of a coalition to try to help move this along. And so as a voter, since I see I own a horse and I vote, is this one topic that we as horse owners can do something about? Yes. And so what happens, Wendy, and I'll talk about this a little bit more, but um, we have what we call action alerts. So you don't have to be an American Horse Council member to sign up for what we call our congressional cavalry. You can do that for free. And we use the congressional cavalry to send out action alerts. So when we have a piece of legislation like the PAST Act that's going through the House and we're trying to get more co-sponsors, we send out an action alert and we ask people and we provide a tool where they just fill in Wendy, here's my address, here's my zip code. And it's going to populate a letter and tell you who your representative is and automatically fix that letter. So all you have to do is hit send and send letters up on the hill for that. So that's the best way to join your cavalry. I love that. <laughs> um, and sign up for the newsletters and then respond to the email so that we can get this act passed because this has been kicking around for a long time. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> time to get this one done, especially if we have to get to our senators. So um, I'm going to talk about two um, pieces of legislation that we are neutral on, and that's because the industry is split. And the first one is called the Safeguard American Food Act or the SAFE Act. This is really the conversation about slaughter. And believe it or not, we have some organizations that feel that that's an avenue they need to keep open. And we have some organizations that feel like we need to ban slaughter. So we're split. So again, our role is to speak to all sides of this. We remain neutral on it and try to make sure we educate people about uh, both the pros and the cons and the challenges and the different perspectives that are there. And I just wanna go back historically, maybe you can or cannot answer this question, but I can remember as a kid in the seventies that there was a huge problem with horses being shipped across state lines, but so badly the horses were falling down. There were, I mean, just, I remember it was a huge uproar and I, and I don't know if you know anything about that. And then it quieted down. And then of course we got into this next round of banning horse sort in this country. But what, do you remember what the issue was back in the seventies? Yeah, so back then there weren't a whole lot of regulations around the transport of horses to go over the border, whether to Mexico or Canada. Um, USDA has now put in some additional safeguards to try to manage that because you're exactly right. Horses were arriving at the border and they were emaciated, dehydrated, um, whatever the circumstances might be. So things have improved a little bit on the transport side, um, but still, we still have our challenges, not to, not to say that we don't. Um, I will tell you, if you go to the USDA website, they do post numbers of the horses that have been going across the border each year. And that number has tailed down over the oh. last about five years. It's, it's gone down significantly. It used to be in close to, I don't know, I'm going to say this off the top of my head, like in the 30,000 or so that horses that went Either way, that's not true anymore. Uh, the last year, we we're seeing numbers under ten thousand. Uh, so that's huge. Yeah, so it's a huge, yeah. a, a huge decline. So it's been a that's that's been a plus. Okay. 
Okay, so next on here is Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act or the HISA Act. Um, this was geared towards installing some more consistency for um, drug testing and uh, other kinds of safety measures in the thoroughbred industry. Um, this did pass. Um, and so now we're involved in a little bit in sort of the implementation of this. But there, if you want to go out to the HISA website, you can learn all about. They have a board of directors. They have a couple of committees that will tell you all the things that they are looking at. I think their deadline for implementation is mid-year next year. So they're in the, they're in the rulemaking uh, phase of this thing right now. Uh, still, some people who are anxious about this, they said, I know it's written for thoroughbreds. But, you know, do you think you're going to see it sort of bleed over to standard breads or quarter horse racing or other aspects of the racing industry? And the way it's written right now, we don't anticipate that. But uh, states have the choice to opt in or opt out on this. So there's a lot of components to this. This was a complicated web on this. I was going to say, if, if you were to give us sort of the nutshell version, basically it's about regulating what drugs I can use in, in the thoroughbred racehorses. It is, and it's also about the timing of uh, applying certain uh, medications. So they have what they call in competition window and out of competition windows, um, just a, a number of different uh, aspects to that one. Okay, so rather complicated, pretty much just dealing with that. Are they dealing with surfaces at all, like at racetracks or anything like that? Yeah, I think the safety committee is going to get into some issues that have to do with surfaces, because you probably know uh, some of the challenges that Santa Anita um two years ago my time is lost with pandemic. I know it's crazy but yes <laughs> but, um, but that it was really interesting because when they were having some breakdowns on the track people thought it was all about you know how we were treating the horses and in some cases we had to really educate congressional members about the difference between uh turf and dirt and some of the different surfaces and some of the different challenges because that has a, a factor in there too lots of variables uh, right uh, and last I just threw on here um Everybody thinks that what we do here at the American Horse Council has to do with horses, and it does, but it also bleeds over into, as you've heard, trails. It bleeds over into sports betting. Uh, it, it bleeds over into a lot of other areas. I mean, who would think we'd be talking about visas, but we do. Um, so sports betting is something that we sort of monitor uh, a little bit there. So that's what I've got for legislative things. Now let's talk regulatory. So we spend a lot of time and energy with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, especially on disease mitigation and import-export regulations. Uh, the last thing we need is for an outbreak of African horse sickness or strangles or something like that. That could decimate the entire herd uh, we have here in the U.S. So we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how we monitor that and how we make sure that we are staying on top of some of those issues. Uh, you may recall a couple of years ago, there was a big brouhaha over electronic logging devices and commercial driver's license requirements. So the Department of Transportation didn't realize that they were going to be inundated by the horse industry about electronic logging devices. This was meant to be a way to automate the collection of um, mileage and other data that's needed when you uh, carry uh, any kind of, of uh, whether it's livestock or commodity you know, uh, transportation. Uh, but the way it was written, we had, oh, moms and dads who had a dually, you know, pulling a two-horse trailer, going to a 4-H show, going nuts, trying to say, do I have to get an electronic logging device? Do I need a commercial driver's license? Uh, those kinds of things. So we've been working really closely with Department of Transportation on that. And thank goodness that's sort of 
that's sort of abated. It's been, it's been really nice to work with them. Um, we are really working hard right now um, on a rule change on reentry of competition horses. Um, this is through the Department of Agriculture. Um, this has to do, Wendy, with uh, people who compete um, in uh, uh, traditionally at a higher level and they go out of the country and they come back and how long they have to, uh, to do any kind of testing uh, when they come back and, and uh, quarantines and those kinds of things. So we've been working a little bit on that, trying to make it a little easier, especially for, um, I'm trying to think of a good example, someone who goes to Canada to show in a show and they come back across the border and all the, the various things that they have to go through to get back in the U.S. kind of thing. Yeah, there's the, I, I've forgotten now, in Canada in the summertime, the huge jumper shows, mm -hmm. um, you know, and they're just up there for the summer and then they want to come home. If they want to come home and then they want to go to their next show. But if they have to stand down, so to speak, for a period of time, that really causes some heartburn because they want to go on and show, uh, you know, fairly soon. Got it. Um, we've been working most recently with the Environmental Protection Agency because they raised a concern about the use of pyrethin. Now, pyrethin is a chemical that's in fly spray and the conversations. Uh oh. He froze. What happened? Oh, she froze. Why did she freeze? I'll get her back. Mm. Hang on. I'm just going to switch over. That was really weird. <laughs> but we're just going to see if I switch over here. Do, do, do. OK, are you back? I'm there. Oh, great. Okay. I don't, I don't know what happened, but we're back. Great. We'll, so we'll, we'll talk we'll, about py pyrethin. Yeah. So <laughs> as I said, pyrethin is a chemical that's used in fly spray. And why this came about was because the EPA requires that they have extensive uh, background research uh, evidence that says that the use of a certain uh, drug uh, chemicals are not going to have a negative effect on the humans that are around. And so uh, we've been working with the fly spray manufacturers to provide them with that research data so that we don't have a rule change about that. We think, we think we've got enough data to make our case that it's not harming anyone. Uh, we just need to get that on file with, with EPA. Okay. Um, in California specifically, we've been working on what's called CAFO. CAFO is got to do with environmental regulations and large scale equine facilities. And CAFO stands for Consolidated Animal Feed Operations. Mm. And these rules were written to really address challenges with other livestock. But in California, they've had some groups that are trying to apply those rules uh, to large equine facilities. Uh, and that has to do with water and waste. Uh, and we have one or two in California that are really, really concerned that they may have to close their facility or try to put in a waste bladder underneath their facility to address concerns about uh, soil contamination and, and those kinds of things. So that's been one of Cliff Williamson's big projects uh, for the last little while. Uh, if you're familiar with California, it's affecting right now around the Del Mar showgrounds. Uh, mm. There's a couple of facilities that are on uh, the edge of a sort of a creek in San Ponabispo, if I say that correctly. <laughs> so a couple little places out there. Um, next on my list is 
e-bikes. Now, e-bikes are electronic bicycles that can go up to 35 miles an hour. What has the American Horse Council got to do with bicycles? Well, the Department of Interior and the park systems, et cetera, have opened up multi-use trails for e-bikes. And Wendy, as you can imagine, if you're on your horse and you're riding a trail and suddenly a electronic bicycle traveling almost 30 miles an hour or whatever comes up upon you, this is not going to end well for anyone. No, no, no. <laughs> so we've been spending a lot of time with an organization called People for Bikes, riding out good, clean etiquette rules for all users on multi-trails, uh, especially with e-bikes. Um, we really think e-bikes are great uh, tools. Um, but we want to make certain that everybody's smart and safe about uh, how we use them around one another. And then I mentioned trails, trail maintenance uh, a little bit earlier. Um, we're going through a process right now of prioritizing trails that are in disrepair and trail heads that need work and a number of things for that. So believe it or not, we touch all these departments here. I've talked about Department of Ag. I've talked about Department of uh, Transportation. We've talked about EPA. Now I'm talking about Department of Interior. <laughs> and, and so like e-bikes, I find, because where I live, we don't have e-bikes, but I, I can certainly see the problem with them. Is this something, how does this get to you as an issue? Is it that horses have been out on trails and they uh, have had problems with e-bikes and somebody reports it and it gradually filters up? Or is, is this a top down or bottom up? So there's a little bit of both with this one. Um, the bottom up is do, people do call us and say, I had this experience. It was frightening. You know, what, what's going on with this? Um, but also we work from the top down because we are a member of the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable. So I'm going to change slides here a minute so you can see partnerships here on the left. Wow. Second one up here, Outdoor Recreation Roundtable. This is um, a coalition of all outdoor uh, recreation uh, associations. So biking, hiking, camping, boating, archery, scuba diving horseback riding, you name it, we're all part of that. And we meet on a regular basis and we talk about issues that sort of affect one another and how we can nicely play together and, and help each other. So that's that one comes from the top down um, on, on that particular one. But you'll see here, we're really involved with the American Youth Horse Council. Uh, I mentioned already the next one, uh, there is a coalition for recreation trails. We are involved with that. Uh, UBIT which is a tax coalition that we work on. Um, there is a coalition for professional certification. So there's been a movement in some states to restrict or limit professional certifications. Well, in our space, we have uh, therapeutic riding instructors who get certified. We have judges and stewards who get certified. So we don't want um, professional certifications to uh, be too terribly uh, narrowly defined. So we've been working on, on that one. Uh, Economic Business Coalition, Tax Aggies Coalition, Animal Ag Sports Coalition, believe it or not, we're really involved with professional sports. So Major League Football, Baseball, Basketball, us, all of us get together and talk about issues that are going on in sports. Um, this one became interesting, Wendy. This one became really a, a, a nice uh, project during the course of the pandemic because we were working with them on the Save Our Shuttered Venues legislation, which was designed to help get facilities back open in the sporting world. And what are some ways that we could, we could do that? So it was kind of interesting in, in COVID times. Uh, we're on the Physical Activity Council. Uh, again, we talked already about visas. 
um, the American Society of Association Executives because we have a lot of associations uh, in our space. <laughs> so we're involved with that. And then of course we're involved with the chamber because we have a lot of small business things that, that we work on there. So that's the left-hand side. Right-hand side is all this education and leadership I mentioned at the beginning. We offer quarterly webinars. And if you didn't, if you hadn't seen those, go to our website where you can hear the replay. Our last one was uh, the great guy from Compton Cowboys telling us all about what they're doing. Oh, fun. I've, I've, I've loved to learn more about that. That's great. Yeah, and Randy's super, super. Uh, we have an annual conference uh, where we, uh, our committees meet and we have some guest speakers and all those kinds of things. We do a congressional fly-in. We did it virtually this year, uh, but it's usually in the fall. And we have a lineup of congressional offices. We're going to go in. We're going to talk about our issues. We're going to answer their questions uh, and kind of forge those relationships. We do the same process for youth. Um, we have a lot of really, really great young people in our space. And we want to build those future advocates uh, for our space. So we do that whole process for them, too. Uh, we host a CEO forum. And I, I mentioned internships. And then we publish newsletters and Washington updates and those call to action alerts. We have a grassroots uh, lobbying guide. Uh, we do a tax handbook and a tax bulletin. And then of course that economic impact study that we can't live without. <laughs> kind of is the underpinnings to why this is important, right? Right, right, right. I will tell you that when we go in congressional offices, we go in and the first thing we do is hand them that economic impact study so they get what it is, we're there, how big we are, what, what we mean to the entire, you know, sort of uh, global uh, economy that, that's out there. Uh, and so I think I'm getting down to one of my last slides here. Uh, this is um, all of these initiatives that we get involved with. So again, because we're that Switzerland, we're that neutral third party, this is where people come to us and say, could you get this going or could you sort of oversee this? So if you're not familiar with the Equine Disease Communication Center, look it up. Um, that's where we track all of our equine disease outbreaks and um, do some analysis on those to tell us uh, how they might uh, affect the industry. Um, and it's really a, a wonderful tool. And it, it's an app on your phone too. So if you're getting ready to go to a horse show and you wanna check it out, you wanna make sure before you leave home that you're not gonna get to wherever that facility is only to discover there's been a disease outbreak reported. So some, some really valuable stuff there. I mentioned the United Horse Coalition. We've got a wonderful database there of all kinds of resources to help people who are struggling. I mentioned the Welfare Data Collective Project. Uh, we also sponsor horselookup.org, which is a universal equine microchip search engine. Now, you, we're, we're all getting to the point now where we've, we've been chipping our dogs for a while. It's time to chip the horses. So we can track their movement, make sure we know what we've got going on here. Uh, I don't say that from a, from a big brother's watching kind of thing, but it's a great tool um, to kind of monitor uh, where horses are. So if they come into a rescue, like they, they've been surrendered, you can scan their chip, those kinds of things. Um, and uh, what we found was we had a lot of different chip manufacturers in the space. And if Wendy had a horse that showed up on her property and she scanned him and she found he had a chip, if you didn't know uh, about which manufacturer made that chip, you'd have to look five or six places. So we created this one universal search engine. So all of the chip manufacturers participate. So we know uh, that you can go there and look them up. That's awesome. Um, we have a, a youth engagement task force, which is really all about trying to get kids involved and keeping them engaged. 
this past year, we formed a, a diversity, equality, and inclusion task force. Uh, this is a collaborative effort to uh, create um, a business case for implementing diversity, equality, and inclusion in our space and giving some tools and resources to help encourage that. Uh, we just had our first Equine Research Ecosystem Summit. This brings together all the researchers in the space and all the funders to talk about ways that we can increase and promote research. And it's not just traditional equine health research, like you said, it, it can be turf, it could be uh, uh, physical challenges. Uh, I've got a, a researcher at the University of Kentucky who's in the Department of Health, who's doing a fascinating study on the um, well-being of jockeys. You know, what, what body parts break down when you are a jockey? Um, she's doing an interesting study on farriers. You know, we all think about oh. farriers and their backs <laughs> and their knees, that kind of thing. She's doing some, she's doing some fa fascinating stuff. I talked about the uh, economic impact study coming up in uh, 2023. Um, and I'll start doing some fundraising next year on that. And then I've got all these little ad hoc committees. Uh, and I, I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail, but I will tell you that during the pandemic, because so many people wanted to go camping, all of the designated horse campsites in the park systems were being used by non-livestock people. So you'd haul your horse to a park, um, say you are going to have your two horse trailer with you only to discover that somebody who is there with their uh, children has um, camped in your space. <laughs> so we've been doing some interesting work over there. And those are all those little acronyms. That's the Backcountry Horsemen of America, the Equine Land Conservation Resource People, and the American Endurance uh, Group oh, that yeah. we've got on, on some of those things. Yeah. Um, we also had our Health and Regulatory Committee uh, trying to see how we get out the word um, and warning consumers about ransom and bailout schemes. Uh, we started seeing a lot in social media where people say, uh, I need X amount of money to, for this horse. Um, and um, the person uh, pays the amount and then the horse that gets delivered to them is not the horse that they expected to get. Hmm. Um, or the horse is not in very good condition. So there, there's some, some uh, challenges there. So we've been trying to let people know that there, there are lots of ways that you can get a great horse from a legitimate rescue, uh, which you can be assured is going to be what you expected it to be and is going to be in good health. Uh, so we're not discouraging people. We, we appreciate people who want to bail out horses of bad situations or that kind of thing. But it's a, it's a little bit problematic for people who aren't necessarily horse people who don't understand how to ask the right questions and you know sort of yeah. navigate that. So uh, we've got a bunch of conversation right now going on about infectious anemia and equine paraplomosis um, at match races, which is unsanctioned racing events. These are races that just pop up uh, across the country, mostly in the mid uh, to southwest. And they just put up a tape and race. Uh, but because those horses are not being uh, perhaps um, managed quite as well, uh, they, they, they have a lot of potential to cross um, 
sort of contaminate each other <laughs> with, with various diseases. And so we see some things pop up there. So lots of, of interesting things there. So that's the American Horse Council. Wendy, I've covered a lot of territory. Wow. I'm going to close with this one little slide. Um, our 501c3 is our nonprofit arm, which is our foundation. And that was established to support worthwhile, charitable, scientific, and educational projects. So we do a lot of research surveys and research support and contribute to a lot of different uh, research kind of initiatives like the equine disease communication and that kind of thing. Um, we're always telling researchers in our space, if you need to increase the responses to your surveys or you need help getting the word out about a, a particular type of research study you're doing, let us know and we'll get the word out and try to, to help you with that. So. So it's a, a lot of fun to work with a lot of them on that. So that's my story, Wendy, and I'm sticking wow. to it. <laughs> that, this is amazing. This is, is, you know, this is really what I wanted to hear about because um, it, there are so many pies that you have fingers in, um, but there's so many facets of the industry. And this is really, really interesting all the way from the trails to the e-bikes. That one, I'm like, wow, I can see where that's something that really needs to be addressed because of the safety factors. Um, but it's, it's amazing to see how many different uh, tendrils there are and how far reaching they are. And um, this has been fantastic. Well, it's, it just, it fascinates me. People ask me about my job. I say, I love my job because it's so diverse. I mean, you think you're going to work on something very specific. And the next thing you know, you're on the phone with someone talking about the fact that someone's looking at a um, standard code of practice that they would like to implement that would require all horse barns to have sprinkler systems. And I said, that's not realistic. <laughs> no. Most horse, no horse barn is on a main water main. You know, they're, they're not somewhere where water is just readily accessible necessarily. Um, so we, we get into these kind of conversations and it's a lot of education. Just people yeah. have the best intentions. They just don't understand the space. You know? Well, and then, you know, in, in the past, I, I remember that you also publish a book that's about this thick that lists all the equine. You want to talk about that a little bit just so that people know what that is? Yeah. So we, we publish a book that is all of the law cases in the equine industry and how they were adjudicated and what the implications of all those things are, which gets you into analysis about whether someone is uh, doing this as a business or a hobby and what are the tests that are asked and what was the outcome of that piece of, uh, of, of court case. Uh, you know, all kind of contracts that are that are not followed that cause litigation. And we just we make one big book <laughs> that has all that in it um, because it's, it's really a, um, very helpful, especially let's say you have a friend, Wendy, who suddenly finds themselves in a precarious business arrangement. And they're like, you know, what do I do? How has this been handled in the past? What are my what are the, the avenues that I should think about before I go too far one way or the other with whatever steps that I feel like I need to take. Have you ever been asked to testify in a trial that related to? <laughs> Thank goodness, no, but I have, I do have um, friends in the, in the industry, uh, horse trainers and others who have been, you know, um, I have a, a um, old friend uh, who was a horse trainer and she got, I guess what you call subpoenaed to speak about certain uh, health practices on a facility where a woman had started maybe to hoard horses a little bit too much and, and weren't in that great a shape. And they wanted her to, to you know, come and testify, explain what was acceptable care 
uh, and that kind of thing. So, yeah. So. Okay. And that, so my last question is, so 25 states have their own American Horse Council at the state level. Is that right? So there are 25 states that have state horse councils. Yes. Um, I will tell you state horse councils are an interesting component of the space because some states do not have the financial means to have a paid staff for their state horse council, their volunteers. So that makes it a little precarious sometimes because people are given their, their time and their talents and that kind of thing to keep things moving. Some states, Maryland's a great example, North Carolina have really robust state horse councils that get really involved because they have paid staff. They have a revenue stream that'll allow them to do that. But there are plenty of states that don't have a state horse council. And believe it or not, Wendy, our top three states in horse population, which are California, Texas, and Florida, all three of those don't have a state horse council. What? Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, it's so funny. And I think personally, the reason for that is that those states have such a large horse population that is such diverse interest that trying to get them together to work as a council can be a challenge. Mm. So it's, it's, it's good. But when we are doing, when we're doing projects here at, at the federal level, and we have a question about something going on in Florida. We have to sort of scratch our heads and figure out who we're going to call uh, because we don't have we don't have a go to place. <laughs> right. Right. But I mean, because every state's got its own legislative issues about horses mm -hmm. and, um, and environment and all those sort of things. And then so it's important, you know, I would think I know Virginia hasn't has a horse council. Virginia, Virginia has a really good horse council. Um, but it's, it's fascinating. Pennsylvania has a great council, Michigan, Minnesota. I, I can shout out to a lot of those states, but it's really problematic in some of those states where not so much. Uh, right. So, so something to just think about in terms of um, if someone wanted to see about forming a state horse council, what would they do? They would call me because we have a book called How to Form a State Horse Council. <laughs> And then we have a book called How to Maintain a State Horse Council. Um, I'll give you a great example. Uh, in Missouri right now, they haven't had a State Horse Council, or if they had one, it kind of went defunct. They're trying to get started again. Uh, they've mobilized some volunteers to get together to form a board and sort of write some bylaws and get themselves going. Uh, and then once you get through those initial steps, then you've still got to have the energy <laughs> to keep it going. Right. So I've been I've been chatting with them, but that's it, it's a challenge. Yeah, because, you know, one of the things that uh, just coming back from Nashville, that one of the things that struck me there was the just the degree of construction. Now, granted, it's in the city, but everywhere we're seeing, you know, sort of human boon and construction. And every time there's construction, it seems that the horse barns get taken down or pushed out or moved out. And, you know, one of the things having traveled in Europe quite a bit that I see that they've done that we haven't done such a good job of is integrating horses into our communities, into our neighborhoods and our networking so that kids can still see horses and go to the local stable and learn to ride and, and have that contact, which is so important. Um, is this something that American Horse Council gets involved with at all in terms of in that land use piece of how do we keep horses in uh, where the population is so that kids can ride? Yeah, so we work pretty closely with the Equine Land Conservation Resource right. group uh, because they're all about explaining to people who have private lands how to protect those lands so they can't be gobbled up by developers and those kinds of things. But yes, we do work quite a bit on, on land uh, use issues. Um, and you 
you triggered a thought and it went right out of my head. But yes, the short answer to that is yes. We're, we're yeah, involved. you know, having horses around for kids to, to be able to touch and feel a horse is so, in my opinion, is the most critical because as a kid, I didn't I didn't have a horsey family, but they would take me on my birthday to the local hack stable. And yeah, was it the most beautiful place in the world? No, but could I touch a horse? And did that influence my life? Absolutely. So I, I remembered what I was going to tell you. Um, there are some exciting, really exciting um, urban programs right now. Um, so Detroit Power, um, Work to Ride, which is in Philadelphia, uh, Mulatto Meadows, which is in uh, California, uh, Compton Cowboys, of course, I mentioned to you before we started, uh, are these great programs that are really drawing um, inner city kids to horses. Um, some of them have been able to uh, acquire a piece of property in the city, but many of them just work through um, various school systems and other ways to take children out of the inner city and introduce them to horses and those kinds of things. And so I've been, I've been on a campaign personally to promote those programs because they're doing a great job and we want to replicate them, you know. Absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. That's great news. Well, Julie, we have just cruised through this hour. This has been really fascinating. I so appreciate this because now I have some a better understanding of the American. I mean, I've known of the American Horse Council for years and years and years, but you know, sometimes it's a little hard to grapple. And that's because there's so many, so many things you're doing. Well, that, and I will say to you that I constantly tell people when I'm on the speaker circuit <clears throat> that most of the horse community, um, they sort of know that we exist, but they don't know how important we are until they get into trouble. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we need you to be working on so-and-so. And we're like, we've been here working on that. <laughs> but, but unfortunately, it's one of those things that, you know, you don't know until you need them kind of thing. Right. Well, I'm so glad you're out there. I'm so glad you're working as an advocate for the horse industry and uh, keeping an eye on everything that needs to be kind of observed and watched and moved and pushed along. That's really fantastic. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks, Wendy. I appreciate you um, taking the time to talk with us. And if at some point down the road, you want to hear more about any of these, I'll get one of the staff members to come on and do another podcast for you. And you can hear some details. Awesome. Yeah, actually, I've already been thinking about that. So that would be great. So we'll look forward to that. We'll connect with you and we'll get that done. Okay, well, happy holidays and happy new year. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Bye.